Chapter 2 Satan's Devices to Draw the Soul to Sin Twelve Devices and Their Remedies Device 1. To Present the Bait and Hide the Hook Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet the pleasure and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin, and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device he deceived our first parents. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Genesis chapter 3 verses 4 and 5. Your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods. Here is the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. Oh, but he hides the hook, the shame, the wrath, and the loss that would certainly follow. There is an opening of the eyes of the mind to contemplation and joy, and there is an opening of the eyes of the body to shame and confusion. He promises them the former, but intends the latter. And so Satan cheats them giving them an apple in exchange for a paradise, as he deals by thousands nowadays. Satan with ease pawns falsehoods upon us by his golden baits, and then he leads us and leaves us in a fool's paradise. He promises the soul honor, pleasure, profit, but pays the soul with the greatest contempt, shame, and loss that can be. By a golden bait he labored to catch Christ— He shows him the beauty and the finery of a bewitching world, which doubtless would have taken many a carnal heart. But here the devil's fire fell upon wet tinder, and therefore did not ignite. These tempting objects did not at all win upon his affections, nor dazzle his eyes, though many have eternally died of the wound of the eye, and fallen forever by this vile strumpet, the world." who, by laying forth her two fair breasts of profit and pleasure, has wounded their souls and cast them down into utter perdition. She has, by the glistening of her pomp and preferment, slain millions, as the serpent Sittel, which, when she cannot overtake the fleeing passengers, does, with her beautiful colors, dazzle and amaze them, so that they have no powers to pass away until she has stung them to death." Adversity has slain her thousand, but prosperity her ten thousand. Remedy 1. First, keep at the greatest distance from sin, and from playing with the golden bait which Satan holds forth to catch you, for this you have. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. When we meet with anything extremely evil and contrary to us, nature abhors it and retires as far as it can from it. The Greek word that is here rendered abhor is very significant. It signifies to hate it as hell itself, to hate it with horror. Anselm used to say that if he should see the shame of sin on the one hand, and the pains of hell on the other, and must of necessity choose one, he would rather be thrust into hell without sin than to go into heaven with sin. So great was his hatred and detestation of sin. It is our wisest and our safest course to stand at the farthest distance from sin, not to go near the house of the harlot, 
but to fly from all appearance of evil. The best course to prevent falling into the pit is to keep at the greatest distance from it. He who will be so bold as to attempt to dance upon the brink of the pit may find by woeful experience that it is a righteous thing with God that he should fall into the pit. Joseph keeps at a distance from sin and from playing with Satan's golden baits and stands. David draws near and plays with the bait and falls and swallows bait and hook. David comes near the snare and is taken in it to the breaking of his bones, the wounding of his conscience, and the loss of fellowship with God. Sin is a plague, yes, the worst and most infectious plague in the world. And yet, ah, how few are there who tremble at it, who keep at a distance from it. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? As soon as one sin had seized upon Adam's heart, all sin entered into his soul and infested it. How has Adam's one sin spread over all mankind? Therefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Ah, how does the father's sin infect the child, the husband's infect the wife, the master's the servant? The sin that is in one man's heart is able to infect a whole world. It is of such a spreading and infectious nature. The story of the Italian, who first made his enemy deny God, and then stabbed him, and so at once murdered both body and soul, declares the unmixed malignity of sin. And oh, that what has been spoken upon this head may prevail with you, to stand at a distance from sin. Remedy 2. Consider that sin is but a bitter sweet, that seeming sweet that is in sin will quickly vanish, and lasting shame, sorrow, horror, and terror will come in the room thereof. He enjoyed the taste of his wickedness, letting it melt under his tongue. He savored it, holding it long in his mouth, but suddenly the food he has eaten turns sour within him, a poisonous venom in his stomach. Job chapter 20 verses 12 through 14. Forbidden prophets and pleasures are most pleasing to vain men, who count madness mirth. Many long to be meddling with the murdering morsels of sin, which nourish not, but rend and consume the belly, and the soul that receives them. Many eat that on earth what they digest in hell. Sin's murdering morsels will deceive those who devour them. Adam's apple was a bitter sweet, Esau's bowl of stew was a bitter sweet. The Israelites' quails, a bitter sweet. Jonathan's honey, a bitter sweet. And Adonijah's dainties, a bitter sweet. After the meal is ended, then comes the reckoning. Men must not think to dance and dine with the devil and then to sup with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, to feed upon the poison of asps, and yet that the viper's tongue should not slay them. When the asp stings a man, it does first tickle him, so as it makes him laugh, until the poison, little by little, gets to the heart, and then it pains him more than ever it delighted him. So does sin. It may please a little at first, but it will pain the soul at last. Yes, if there were the least real delight in sin, there could be no consummate hell, where men shall most completely be tormented with their sin.
Remedy 3. Solemnly to consider that sin will usher in the greatest and the saddest losses that can be upon our souls. It will usher in the loss of that divine favor which is better than life, and the loss of that joy which is unspeakable and full of glory, and the loss of that peace which passes understanding, and the loss of those divine influences by which the soul has been refreshed, quickened, raised, strengthened, and gladdened, and the loss of many outward desirable mercies which otherwise the soul might have enjoyed. Remedy 4. Seriously to consider that sin is of a very deceitful and bewitching nature. Sin is from the greatest deceiver. It is a child of his own begetting. It is the ground of all the deceit in the world, and it is in its own nature exceeding deceitful. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. It will kiss the soul, and look enticing to the soul, and yet betray the soul forever. It will with Delilah smile upon us, that it may betray us into the hands of the devil, as she did Samson into the hands of the Philistines. Sin gives Satan a power over us, and an advantage to accuse us and to lay claim to us, as those who wear his badge. It is of a very bewitching nature. It bewitches the soul, where it is upon the throne, that the soul cannot leave it, though it perish eternally by it. Sin so bewitches the soul that it makes the soul call evil good and good evil, bitter, sweet, and sweet, bitter, light, darkness, and darkness, light. And a soul thus bewitched with sin will stand it out to the death, at the sword's point with God. Let God strike and wound and cut to the very bone, yet the bewitched soul cares not, fears not, but will still hold on in a course of wickedness, as you may see in Pharaoh, Balaam, and Judas. Tell the bewitched soul that sin is a viper that will certainly kill when it is not killed, that sin often kills secretly, insensibly, eternally, yet the bewitched soul cannot and will not cease from sin. When the physicians told Theodomus that except he did abstain from drunkenness and uncleanness, he would lose his eyes, his heart was so bewitched to his sins that he answered, Then farewell, sweet light. He had rather lose his eyes than leave his sin. So a man bewitched with sin had rather lose God, Christ, heaven, and his own soul than part with sin. Oh, therefore, forever take heed of playing with or nibbling at Satan's golden baits. Device 2. By Painting Sin with Virtue's Colors Satan knows that if he would present sin in its own nature and dress, the soul would rather fly from it than yield to it, and therefore he presents it unto us, not in its own proper colors, but painted and gilded over with the name and show of virtue, that we may the more easily be overcome by it, and take the more pleasure in committing of it. Pride he presents to the soul under the name and notion of neatness and cleanliness, and covetousness, which the apostle condemns for idolatry, to be but good business, and drunkenness to be good fellowship, and riotousness under the name and notion of liberality, and wantonness as a trick of youth. Remedy 1. Consider that sin is never a whit the less filthy, vile, and abominable by its being colored and painted with virtue's colors. 
The poisonous pill is never a whit the less poisonous because it is gilded over with gold. Nor a wolf is ever a whit the less a wolf because he has put on a sheep's skin. Nor the devil is never a whit the less a devil because he appears sometimes like an angel of light. So neither is sin any whit the less filthy and abominable by its being painted over with virtue's colors. Remedy 2. That the more sin is painted forth under the color of virtue, the more dangerous it is to the souls of men. This we see evident in these days by those very many souls that are turned out of the way that is holy, and in which their souls have had sweet and glorious communion with God, into ways of highest vanity and folly, by Satan's neat coloring over of sin, and painting forth vice under the name and color of virtue. This is so notoriously known that I need but name it. The most dangerous vermin is too often to be found under the fairest and sweetest flowers. The fairest glove is often drawn upon the foulest hand, and the richest robes are often put upon the filthiest bodies. So are the fairest and sweetest names upon the greatest and the most horrible vices and errors that be in the world. Ah, that we had not too many sad proofs of this among us. Remedy 3. To look on sin with that eye with which within a short time we shall see it. Ah, souls, when you shall lie upon a dying bed and stand before a judgment seat, sin shall be unmasked, and its dress and robes shall then be taken off, and then it shall appear more vile, filthy, and terrible than hell itself. Then that which formerly appeared most sweet will appear most bitter." and that which appeared most beautiful will appear most ugly, and that which appeared most delightful will then appear most dreadful to the soul. Ah, the shame, the pain, the gall, the bitterness, the horror, the hell that the sight of sin, when its dress is taken off, will raise in poor souls. Sin will surely prove evil and bitter to the soul when its robes are taken off. A man may have the stone who feels no fit of it, Conscience will work at last, though for the present one may feel no fit of accusation. Laban showed himself at parting. Sin will be bitterness in the latter end, when it shall appear to the soul in its own filthy nature. The devil deals with men as the panther does with beasts. He hides his deformed head until his sweet scent has drawn them into his danger. Until we have sinned, Satan is a parasite. When we have sinned, he is a tyrant. O souls, the day is at hand when the devil will pull off the paint and garnish that he has put upon sin and present that monster sin in such a monstrous shape to your souls that will cause your thoughts to be troubled, your countenance to be changed, the joints of your loins to be loosed, and your knees to be dashed one against another and your hearts to be so terrified that you will be ready with Ahithopel and Judas to strangle and hang your bodies on earth, and your souls in hell, if the Lord has not more mercy on you than he had on them. Oh, therefore look upon sin now as you must look upon it to all eternity, and as God, conscience, and Satan will present it to you another day. Remedy 4. Seriously to consider that even those very sins that Satan paints and puts new names and colors upon cost the best blood, the noblest blood, the life blood, the heart blood of the Lord Jesus. 
that Christ should come from the eternal bosom of his Father to a region of sorrow and death, that God should be manifested in the flesh, the Creator made a creature, that he who was clothed with glory should be wrapped with rags of flesh, he who filled heaven and earth with his glory should be cradled in a manger, that the Almighty God should flee from weak man, the God of Israel into Egypt, that the God of the law should be subject to the law, the God of the circumcision circumcised, the God who made the heavens working at Joseph's homely trade, that he who binds the devils in chains should be tempted, that he whose is the world and the fullness thereof should hunger and thirst, that the God of strength should be weary, the judge of all flesh condemned, the God of life put to death, that he who is one with his father should cry out of misery, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? that he who had the keys of hell and death at his belt should lie imprisoned in the sepulchre of another, having in his lifetime nowhere to lay his head, nor after death to lay his body, that that head, before which the angels do cast down their crowns, should be crowned with thorns, and those eyes, purer than the sun, put out by the darkness of death, those ears which hear nothing but hallelujahs of saints and angels, to hear the blasphemies of the multitude, that face which was fairer than the sons of men, to be spit on by those basely wretched Jews, that mouth and tongue which spoke as never man spoke, accused for blasphemy, those hands which freely swayed the scepter of heaven, nailed to the cross, those feet like unto fine brass nailed to the cross for man's sins, each sense pained with a spear and nails, his smell with stinking odor being crucified on Golgotha, the place of skulls, his taste with vinegar and gall, his hearing with reproaches and sight of his mother and disciples bemoaning him, his soul comfortless and forsaken, and all this for those very sins that Satan paints and puts fine colors upon? Oh, how should the consideration of this stir up the soul against sin, and work the soul to fly from it, and to use all holy means whereby sin may be subdued and destroyed? After Julius Caesar was murdered, Antonius brought forth his coat, all bloody and cut, and laid it before the people, saying, Look, here you have the emperor's coat thus bloody and torn. Whereupon the people were presently in an uproar and cried out to slay those murderers. And they took their tables and stools which were in the place and set them on fire and ran to the houses of those who had slain Caesar and burnt them. So that when we consider that sin has slain our Lord Jesus, ah, how should it provoke our hearts to be revenged on sin, which has murdered the Lord of glory? and has done that mischief that all the devils in hell could never have done. It was good counsel one gave. Never let go out of your minds the thoughts of a crucified Christ. Let these be food and drink unto you. Let them be your sweetness and consolation, your honey and your desire, your reading and your meditation, your life, death, and resurrection. Device 3 by extenuating and lessening of sin. Ah, says Satan, it is but a little pride, a little worldliness, a little uncleanness, a little drunkenness, etc. 
as Lot said of Zoar, It is but a little one, and my soul shall live. Genesis chapter 19, verse 20. Alas, says Satan, it is but a very little sin that you stick so at. You may commit it without any danger to your soul. It is but a little one. You may commit it, and yet your soul shall live. Remedy 1. First, solemnly to consider that those sins which we are apt to account small have brought upon men the greatest wrath of God, as the eating of an apple, gathering a few sticks on the Sabbath day, and touching of the ark. Oh, the dreadful wrath that these sins brought down upon the heads and hearts of men! The least sin is contrary to the laws of God, the nature of God, the being of God, and the glory of God and therefore it is often punished severely by God. And do not we see daily the vengeance of the Almighty falling upon the bodies, names, states, families, and souls of men for those sins that are but little ones in their eyes? Surely if we are not utterly forsaken by God and blinded by Satan, we cannot but see it. Oh, therefore, when Satan says, It is but a little one, you must say, Oh, but those sins which you call little— are such as will cause God to rain hell out of heaven upon sinners as he did upon the Sodomites. Remedy 2. Seriously to consider that the giving way to a less sin makes way for the committing of a greater sin. He who to avoid a greater sin will yield to a lesser, ten thousand to one but God in justice will leave that soul to fall into a greater. If we commit one sin to avoid another, it is just we should avoid neither we having not law nor power in our own hands to keep off sin as we please. And we, by yielding to the lesser, do tempt the tempter to tempt us to the greater. Sin is of an encroaching nature. It creeps on the soul by degrees, step by step, until it has the soul to the very height of sin. David gives way to his wandering eye, and this led him to those foul sins that caused God to break his bones and to turn his day into night, and to leave his soul in great darkness. Jacob and Peter and other saints have found this true by woeful experience, that the yielding to a lesser sin has been the ushering in of a greater. The little thief will open the door and make way for the greater, and the little wedge knocked in will make way for the greater. Satan will first draw you to sit with the drunkard, and then to sip with the drunkard, and then at last to be drunk with the drunkard. He will first draw you to be unclean in your thoughts, and then to be unclean in your looks, and then to be unclean in your words, and at last to be unclean in your practices. He will first draw you to look upon the golden wedge, and then to desire the golden wedge, and then to handle the golden wedge, and then at last by wicked ways to take the golden wedge, though you run the hazard of losing God and your soul forever as you may see in Gehazi, Achan, and Judas, and many in these our days. Sin is never at a standstill. First ungodly, then sinners, then scorners. Here they go on from sin to sin, until they come to the top of sin, that is, to sit in the seat of scorners. By all this we see that the yielding to lesser sins draws the soul to the committing of greater. Ah, how many in these days have fallen, first to have low thoughts of Scripture and ordinances, and then to slight Scripture and ordinances, and then to make a nose of wax of Scripture and ordinances, 
and then to cast off Scripture and ordinances, and then at last to advance and lift up themselves and their Christ-dishonoring and soul-damning opinions above Scripture and ordinances. Sin gains upon man's soul by insensible degrees. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talking is mischievous madness. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 13. Corruption in the heart, when it breaks forth, is like a breach in the sea, which begins in a narrow passage, until it eats through and casts down all before it. The debates of the soul are quick and soon ended, and that may be done in a moment that may undo a man forever. When a man has begun to sin, he knows not where or when or how he shall make a stop of sin. Usually the soul goes on from evil to evil, from folly to folly, until it is ripe for eternal misery. Remedy 3 The third remedy against this third device that Satan has to draw the soul to sin is solemnly to consider that it is sad to sin against God for a trifle. Devis would not give a crumb, therefore he should not receive a drop. It is the greatest folly in the world to adventure to the going to hell for a small matter. I tasted but a little honey, said Jonathan, and I must die. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 29. It is a most unkind and unfaithful thing to break with God for a little. Little sins carry with them but little temptations to sin, and then a man shows most viciousness and unkindness when he sins on a little temptation. It is devilish to sin without a temptation. It is little less than devilish to sin on a little occasion. The less the temptation is to sin, the greater is that sin. Saul's sin in not waiting for Samuel was not so much in the matter, but it was much in the malice of it. For though Samuel had not come at all, yet Saul should not have offered sacrifice. But this cost him dear, his soul and kingdom. It is the greatest unkindness that can be showed to a friend to venture the complaining, bleeding, and grieving of his soul upon a light and slight occasion. So it is the greatest unkindness that can be showed to God, Christ, and the Spirit for a soul to put God upon complaining, Christ upon bleeding, and the Spirit upon grieving by yielding to little sins. Therefore, when Satan says, It is but a little one, you must answer that oftentimes there is the greatest unkindness showed to God's glorious majesty in the acting of the least folly, and therefore you will not displease your best and greatest friend by yielding to his greatest enemy. Remedy 4 The fourth remedy against this device of Satan is seriously to consider that there is great danger, yes, many times most danger, in the smallest sins. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. If the serpent sneaks in his head, he will draw in his whole body after him. Greater sins do sooner startle the soul and awaken and rouse up the soul to repentance than lesser sins do. Little sins often slide into the soul and breed and work secretly and indiscernibly in the soul until they come to be so strong as to trample upon the soul and to cut the throat of the soul. There is oftentimes greatest danger to our bodies in the least diseases that hang upon us because we are apt to make light of them and to neglect the timely use of means for removing of them until they are grown so strong that they prove mortal to us so there is most danger often in the least sins. 
we are apt to take no notice of them, and to neglect those heavenly helps whereby they should be weakened and destroyed, until they are grown to that strength that we are ready to cry out, the medicine is too weak for the disease. I would pray, and I would hear, but I am afraid that sin is grown up by degrees to such a head that I shall never be able to prevail over it. But as I have begun to fall, so I shall utterly fall before it, and at last perish in it, unless the power and free grace of Christ acts gloriously beyond my present apprehension and expectation. The viper is killed by the little young ones that are nourished and cherished in her belly. So are many men eternally killed and betrayed by the little sins, as they call them, that are nourished in their own bosoms. I know not, says one, whether the nurture of the least sin be not worse than the commission of the greatest, for this may be a frailty that argues obstinacy. A little hole in the ship sinks it. A small breach in a dike carries away all before it. A little stab at the heart kills a man. A little sin without a great deal of mercy will damn a man. Remedy 5 The fifth remedy against this device of Satan is solemnly to consider that other saints have chosen to suffer the worst of torments rather than commit the least sin, that is, such as the world accounts little sins, so as you may see in Daniel and his companions that would rather choose to burn and be cast to the lions than they would bow to the idol which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When this slight offense in the world's account and a hot, fiery furnace stood in competition, that they must either fall into sin or be cast into the fiery furnace. Such was their tenderness of the honor and glory of God, and their hatred of indignation against sin, that they would rather burn than sin. They knew that it was far better to burn for their not sinning than that God and conscience should raise a hell, a fire in their bosoms for sin. I have read of that noble servant of God, Marcus Arethusius, minister of a church in the time of Constantine, who had been the cause of overthrowing an idol's temple. Afterwards, when Julian came to be emperor, he would force the people of that place to build it up again. They were ready to do it, but Marcus refused, whereupon those who were his own people, to whom he preached, took him and stripped him of all his clothes, and abused his naked body and gave it up to the children to lance it with their penknives and then caused him to be put in a basket and drenched his naked body with honey and set him in the sun to be stung with wasps. And all this cruelty they showed because he would not do anything towards the building up of this idle temple. No, they came to this, that if he would do but the least towards it, if he would give but a half penny to it, they would save him. But he refused all though the giving of a halfpenny might have saved his life. And in doing this, he did but live up to that principle that most Christians talk of, and all profess, but few come up to. That is, that we must choose rather to suffer the worst of torments that men and devils can invent and inflict, than to commit the least sin whereby God should be dishonored, our consciences wounded, religion reproached, and our own souls endangered. Remedy 6. The sixth remedy against this device of Satan is seriously to consider that the soul is never able to stand under the guilt and weight of the least sin when God shall set it home upon the soul. 
the least sin will press and sink the stoutest sinner as low as hell. When God shall open the eyes of a sinner and make him see the horrid filthiness and abominable vileness that is in sin, what so little base and vile creatures as lice or gnats? And yet by these little poor creatures God so plagued stout-hearted Pharaoh and all Egypt that, fainting under it, they were forced to cry out, This is the finger of God. Exodus chapter 8, verse 16. When little creatures, yes, the least creatures, shall be armed with a power from God, they shall press and sink down the greatest, proudest, and stoutest tyrants who breathe. So, when God shall cast a sword into the hand of a little sin, and arm it against the soul, the soul will faint and fall under it. Some who have but contemplated adultery without any actual acting it, and others having found a trifle and made no conscience to restore it, knowing, by the light of natural conscience, that they did not do as they would be done by, and others that have had some unworthy thought of God, have been so frightened, amazed, and terrified for those sins, which are small in men's account, that they have wished that they had never been born, that they could take no delight in any earthly comfort, that they have been put to their wit's end, ready to make away themselves, wishing themselves annihilated. William Perkins mentions a good man, but very poor, who, being ready to starve, stole a lamb, and being about to eat it with his poor children, and as his manner was afore eating, to ask God's blessing, dare not do it, but fell into a great perplexity of conscience, and acknowledged his fault to the owner, promising payment if ever he should be able. Remedy 7. The seventh remedy against this device is, solemnly to consider, that there is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest affliction. And this appears as clear as the sun, by the severe dealing of God the Father with his beloved Son, who let all the vials of his fiercest wrath upon him, and that for the least sin as well as for the greatest. The wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Of all sin, whether great or small. Oh, how should this make us tremble, as much at the least spark of lust as at hell itself, considering that God the Father would not spare his bosom's son? No, not for the least sin, but would make him drink the dregs of his wrath. And so much for the remedies that may fence and preserve our souls from being drawn to sin by this third device of Satan. Device 4. By presenting to the soul the best men's sins, and by hiding from the soul their virtues, by showing the soul their sins, and by hiding from the soul their sorrows and repentance, as by setting before the soul the adultery of David, the pride of Hezekiah, the impatience of Job, the drunkenness of Noah, the blasphemy of Peter, etc., and by hiding from the soul the tears, the sighs, the groans, the meltings, the humblings and repentings of these precious souls. Remedy 1. The first remedy against this device of Satan is seriously to consider that the Spirit of the Lord has been as careful to note the saints rising by repentance out of sin as he has to note their falling into sins. David falls fearfully, but by repentance he rises sweetly. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, God of my salvation. It is true Hezekiah's heart was lifted up under the abundance of mercy that God had cast in upon him. And it is as true that Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon him, nor upon Jerusalem, in the days of Hezekiah. It is true Job curses the day of his birth, and it is as true that he rises by repentance. Behold, I am vile, says he. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job chapter 40 verse 4, chapter 42 verse 5 and verse 6. Tertullian says that he was born for no other purpose but to repent. Peter falls dreadfully, but rises by repentance sweetly. A look of love from Christ melts him into tears. He knew that repentance was the key to the kingdom of grace. As once his faith was so great that he leaped, as it were, into a sea of waters to come to Christ, so now his repentance was so great that he leaped, as it were, into a sea of tears, because he had denied Christ. Some say that after his sad fall he was ever and always weeping, and that his face was even furrowed with continual tears. He had no sooner took in poison, but he vomited it up again, before it got to the vitals. He had no sooner handled this serpent, but he turned it into a rod to scourge his soul with remorse, for sinning against such clear light and strong love, and sweet discoveries of the heart of Christ to him. Luther confesses that, before his conversion, he met not with a more displeasing word in all his study of divinity than, repent, but afterward, he took delight in the word. Clement notes that Peter so repented that all his life after, every night when he heard the cock crow, he would fall upon his knees and, weeping bitterly, would beg pardon of his sin. Ah, souls, you can easily sin as the saints, but can you repent with the saints? Many can sin with David and Peter that cannot repent with David and Peter, and so must perish forever. Theodosius the emperor, pressing that he might receive the Lord's Supper, excuses his own foul act by David's doing the like. To which Ambrose replies, You have followed David transgressing, follow David repenting, and then think you of the table of the Lord. Remedy 2. The second remedy against this device of Satan is solemnly to consider that these saints did not make a trade of sin. They fell once or twice and rose by repentance, that they might keep the closer to Christ forever. They fell accidentally, occasionally, and with much reluctancy. And you sin presumptuously, obstinately, readily, delightfully, and customarily. The saints cannot sin with a whole will, but as it were with a half-will, an unwillingness, not with a full consent, but with a dissenting consent. You have, by your making a trade of sin, contracted upon your soul a kind of cursed necessity of sinning, that you can as well cease to be or cease to live as you can cease to sin. Sin is by custom become as another nature to you, which you cannot, which you will not lay aside, though you know that if you do not lay sin aside, God will lay your soul aside forever. Though you know that if sin and your soul do not part, 
Christ and your soul can never meet. If you will make a trade of sin and cry out, Did not David sin thus, and Noah sin thus, and Peter sin thus? No, their hearts turned aside to folly one day, but your heart turns aside to folly every day. And when they were fallen, they rise by repentance, and by the actings of faith upon a crucified Christ. But you fall, and have no strength nor will to rise, but wallow in sin, and will eternally die in your sins, unless the Lord be the more merciful to your soul. Do you think, O soul, this is good reasoning? Such a one tasted poison but once, and yet narrowly escaped. But daily I drink poison, yet I shall escape. Yet such is the mad reasoning of vain souls. David and Peter sinned once, foully and fearfully. They tasted poison but once, and were sick to death. But I tasted daily, and yet shall not taste of eternal death. Remember, O souls, that the day is at hand when self-flatterers will be found self-deceivers. Yes, self-murderers. Though sin dwells in the regenerate, yet it does not reign over the regenerate. They rise by repentance. Remedy 3. The third remedy against this device of Satan is seriously to consider that though God does not nor never will disinherit his people for their sins, Yet he has severely punished his people for their sins. David sins, and God breaks his bones for sin. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Psalm 51, verse 8. And because you have done this, the sword shall never depart from your house to the day of your death. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. Though God will not utterly take from them his loving kindness nor allow his faithfulness to fall, nor break his covenant, nor alter the thing that is gone out of his mouth. Yet will he visit their transgression with the rod, and their iniquity with stripes. Psalm 89, verses 30 and 35. The scripture abounds with instances of this kind. This is so known a truth among all that know anything of truth, that to cite more scriptures to prove it would be to light a candle to see the sun at noon. Josephus reports that, not long after the Jews had crucified Christ on the cross, so many of them were condemned to be crucified that there were not places enough for crosses, nor crosses enough for the bodies that were to be hung thereon. The Jews have a proverb that there is no punishment comes upon Israel in which there is not one ounce of the golden calf, meaning that that was so great a sin as that in every plague God remembered it, that it had an influence into every trouble that befell them. Every man's heart may say to him in his sufferings, as the heart of Apollodorus in the kettle, I have been the cause of this. God is most angry when he shows no anger. God, keep me from this mercy. This kind of mercy is worse than all other kinds of misery. One writing to a dead friend has this expression, I accounted a part of unhappiness not to know adversity. I judge you to be miserable because you have not been miserable. Luther says, There is not a Christian that carries not his cross. It is mercy that our affliction is not execution, but a correction. He who has deserved hanging may be glad if he escape with a whipping. God's corrections are our instructions. His lashes our lessons. His scourges our schoolmasters. His chastisements our admonitions. And to note this, both the Hebrews and the Greeks express chastening and teaching by one and the same word, musar, paideia, 
because the latter is the true end of the former, according to that in the proverb. Smart makes wit, and vexation gives understanding. Whence Luther fitly calls affliction the Christian man's divinity. So says Job, chapter 33, verses 14 through 19. But God speaks again and again, though people do not recognize it. He speaks in dreams, in visions of the night when deep sleep falls on people as they lie in bed. He whispers in their ear and terrifies them with his warning. He causes them to change their minds. He keeps them from pride. He keeps them from the grave, from crossing over the river of death. Or God disciplines people with sickness and pain, with ceaseless aching in their bones. When Satan shall tell you of other men's sins to draw you to sin, then think of the same men's sufferings to keep you from sin. Lay your hand upon your heart and say, O my soul, if you sin with David, you must suffer with David. Remedy 4 The fourth remedy against this device of Satan is solemnly to consider that there are but two main ends of God's recording of the falls of his saints, and the one is to keep those from fainting, sinking, and despair under the burden of their sins who fall through weakness and infirmity. And the other is that their falls may be as landmarks to warn others to take heed lest they fall. It never entered into the heart of God to record his children's sins that others might be encouraged to sin, but that others might look to themselves and hang the faster upon the skirts of Christ, and avoid all occasions and temptations that may occasion the soul to fall, as others have fallen, when they have been left by Christ. The Lord has made their sins as landmarks, to warn his people to take heed how they come near those sands and rocks, those snares and baits that have been fatal to the choicest treasures, namely the joy, peace, comfort, and glorious enjoyments of the bravest spirits and noblest souls that ever sailed through the ocean of this sinful, troublesome world, as you may see in David, Job, and Peter. There is nothing in the world that can so notoriously cross the grand end of God's recording of the sins of his saints than for any from thence to take encouragement to sin. And whenever you find such a soul, you may write him Christless, graceless, a soul cast off by God, a soul that Satan has by the hand, and the eternal God knows where he will lead him. I have known a good man, says Bernard who, when he heard of any that had committed some notorious sin, he was accustomed to say with himself, He fell today, so may I tomorrow. Device 5. To present God to the soul as one made up of all mercy. Oh, says Satan, you need not make such a matter of sin. You need not be so fearful of sin, not so unwilling to sin. For God is a God of mercy a God full of mercy, a God that delights in mercy, a God that is ready to show mercy, a God that is never weary of showing mercy, a God more prone to pardon his people than to punish his people, and therefore he will not take advantage against the soul. And why then, says Satan, should you make such a matter of sin? Remedy 1. The first remedy is seriously to consider that it is the greatest judgment in the world to be left to sin upon any pretense, whatever. O unhappy man, when God leaves you to yourself and does not resist you in your sins, woe, woe to him at whose sins God does wink. When God lets the way to hell be a smooth and pleasant way, that is hell on this side, hell, 
and a dreadful sign of God's indignation against a man, a token of his rejection, and that God does not intend good unto him. That is a sad word. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Hosea chapter 4, verse 17. He will be unteachable and incorrigible. He has made a match with mischief. He shall have his belly full of it. He falls with open eyes. Let him fall at his own peril. And that is a terrible saying. So I gave them up unto their own hearts' lusts, and they walked in their own counsels. Psalm 81, verse 12. A soul given up to sin is a soul ripe for hell, a soul hastening to destruction. Ah, Lord, this mercy, humbly beg that whatever you give me up to, you will not give me up to the ways of my own heart. If you will give me up to be afflicted or tempted or reproached, I will patiently sit down and say, It is the Lord. Let him do with me what seems good in his own eyes. Do anything with me. Lay what burden you will upon me so you do not give me up to the ways of my own heart. Augustine says it is a human thing to fall into sin, devilish to persevere therein, and divine to rise from it. Deliver me, O Lord, from that evil man, myself. Remedy 2. The second remedy against this device of Satan is solemnly to consider that God is as just as he is merciful. As the scriptures speak him out to be a very merciful God, so they speak him out to be a very just God. Witness his casting the angels out of heaven and his binding them in chains of darkness until the judgment of the great day. Witness his turning Adam out of paradise. Witness his drowning of the old world. Witness his raining hell out of heaven upon Sodom. Witness all the troubles, losses, sicknesses, and diseases which are in the world. Witness Tophet, which has long been prepared. It has been made ready for the king. Its fire pit has been made deep and wide, with an abundance of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 33. Witness his treasuring up of wrath against the day of wrath. But above all, witness the pouring forth of all his wrath upon his bosom's son, when Jesus bore the sins of his people and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God hanged them up in gibbets, as it were, that others might hear and fear, and do no more so wickedly. Remedy 3. The third remedy against this device of Satan is seriously to consider that sins against God's mercy will bring the greatest and sorest judgments upon men's heads and hearts. Mercy is God's alpha, justice is his omega. David, speaking of these attributes, places mercy in the forefront and justice in the rearward, saying, I will sing of your love and justice. Psalm 101, verse 1. When God's mercy is despised, then his justice takes the throne. God is like a prince who sends not his army against rebels before he has sent his pardon and proclaimed it by a herald of arms. He first hangs out the white flag of mercy. If this wins men in, they are happy forever. But if they remain rebellious, then God will put forth his red flag of justice and judgment. If his mercy is despised, his justice shall be felt. The higher we are in dignity, the more grievous is our fall and misery. God is slow to anger, but he recompenses his slowness with grievousness of punishment. 
If we abuse his mercy to serve our lust, then, in Salvian's phrase, God will rain hell out of heaven, rather than not visit for such sins. See this in the Israelites. He loved them and chose them when they were in their blood and most unlovely. He multiplied them, not by means, but by miracle. From seventy souls they grew in few years to six hundred thousand. The more they were oppressed, the more they prospered. Like chamomile, the more you tread it, the more you spread it. Or like a palm tree, the more it is pressed, the further it spreads. Or like fire, the more it is raked, the more it burns. Their mercies came in upon them like Job's messengers, one upon the neck of the other. He put off their sackcloth and girded them with gladness, encompassed them about with songs of deliverance. He carried them on the wings of eagles. He kept them as the apple of his eye. But they, abusing his mercy, became the greatest objects of his wrath. As I know not the man who can reckon up his mercies, so I know not the man who can sum up the miseries which are coming upon him for their sins. For as our Savior prophesied concerning Jerusalem, that a stone should not be left upon a stone, so it was fulfilled forty years after his ascension, by Vespasian the emperor and his son Titus, who, having besieged Jerusalem, the Jews were oppressed with a grievous famine, in which their food was old shoes, leather, old hay, and the dung of beasts. There died, partly by the sword and partly by the famine, eleven hundred thousand of the poorer sort. Two thousand in one night were slaughtered. Six thousand were burned in a porch of the temple. The whole city was sacked and burned and laid level to the ground, and ninety-seven thousand taken captives and forced to base and miserable service. As Eusebius and Josephus says, Vespasian broke into their city at Kedron, where they took Christ, on the same feast day that Christ was taken. He whipped them where they whipped Christ. He sold twenty Jews for a penny, as they sold Christ for thirty pence. And to this day, in all parts of the world, are they not the offscoring of the world? None more abhorred than they. Men shall be deeper in hell because heaven was offered unto them, but they abused God's mercy. Men's offenses are increased by their obligations. And so Capernaum that was lifted up to heaven was threatened to be thrown down to hell. No souls fall so low into hell, if they fall, as those souls that, by a hand of mercy, are lifted up nearest to heaven. You, who are so apt to abuse God's mercy, consider this, that in the gospel days, the plagues that God inflicts upon the despisers and abusers of mercy are usually spiritual plagues, as blindness of mind, hardness of heart, benumbedness of conscience, which are ten thousand times worse than the worst of outward plagues which can befall you. And therefore, though you may escape temporal judgments, yet you shall not escape spiritual judgments. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3, says the Apostle. Oh, therefore, whenever Satan shall present God to the soul, as one made up of all mercy, that he may draw you to do wickedly, say unto him that sins against God's mercy will bring upon the soul the greatest misery, and therefore whatever becomes of you, you will not sin against mercy. Remedy 4. The fourth remedy against this device of Satan is seriously to consider that Though God's general mercy is over all his works, yet his special mercy is confined to those who are divinely qualified. 
Augustus, in his solemn feasts, gave trifles to some, but gold to others, whom his heart was most set upon. So God, by a hand of general mercy, gives these poor trifles, outward blessings, to those who he least loves. But his gold, special mercy, is only toward those who his heart is most set upon. So in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, patient and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, And showing mercy unto thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Psalm chapter 25, verse 10, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Psalm 32, verse 10, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Psalm chapter 33, verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him, upon those who hope in his mercy. Psalm 103, verse 11, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Verse 17, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon those who fear him. When Satan attempts to draw you to sin by presenting God as a God all made up of mercy, oh, then reply that though God's general mercy extend to all the works of his hand, yet his special mercy is confined to those who are divinely qualified, to those who love him and keep his commandments, to those who trust in him, that by hope hang upon him, and who fear him, and that you must be such a one here, or else you can never be happy hereafter. You must partake of his special mercy, or else eternally perish in everlasting misery, notwithstanding God's general mercy. Remedy 5. The fifth remedy against this device of Satan is solemnly to consider that those who were once glorious on earth and are now triumphing in heaven, did look upon the mercy of God as the most powerful argument to preserve them from sin, and to fence their souls against sin, and not as an encouragement to sin. Psalm 26, verses 3 through 5. For I am constantly aware of your unfailing love, and I have lived according to your truth. I do not spend time with liars or go along with hypocrites. I hate the gatherings of those who do evil, and I refuse to join in with the wicked. So Joseph strengthens himself against sin from the remembrance of mercy. How then can I, says he, do this great wickedness and sin against God? Genesis chapter 39, verse 9. He had his eye fixed upon mercy, and therefore sin could not enter. Though the irons entered into his soul, his soul being taken with mercy was not moved with his mistress's impudence. Satan knocked often at the door, but the sight of mercy would not allow him to answer or open. Joseph, like a pearl in a puddle, keeps his virtue still. The stone called Pontarus is of that virtue, that it preserves him who carries it from taking any hurt by poison. The mercy of God in Christ to our souls is the most precious stone or pearl in the world to prevent us from being poisoned with sin. Likewise, with Paul, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
How shall we, who are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. There is nothing in the world that renders a man more unlike to a saint, and more like to Satan, than to argue from God's mercy to sinful liberty, from divine goodness to licentiousness. This is the devil's logic, and in whomever you find it you may write, This soul is lost. A man may as truly say, The sea burns, or the fire cools, as that God's free grace and mercy should make a truly gracious soul to live wickedly. So the same apostle, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So, John, these things I write unto you that you sin not. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. What was it that he wrote? He wrote that we might have fellowship with the Father and His Son, and that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, and that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and that if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. These choice favors and mercies the Apostle holds forth as the choicest means to preserve the soul from sin, and to keep at the greatest distance from sin. And if this will not do it, you may write the man void of Christ and grace, and undone forever. Device 6. By persuading the soul that the work of repentance is an easy work, and that therefore the soul need not make such a matter of sin. Why? Suppose you do sin, says Satan. It is no such difficult thing to return and confess and be sorrowful and beg pardon and cry, Lord, have mercy upon me. And if you do but this, God will forgive your debt and pardon your sins and save your souls. By this device, Satan draws many a soul to sin and makes many millions of souls servants of sin, or rather, slaves to sin. Remedy 1. The first remedy is seriously to consider that repentance is a mighty work, a difficult work, a work that is above our power. There is no power below that power which raised Christ from the dead and which made the world, which can break the heart of a sinner or turn the heart of a sinner. You are as well able to melt adamant as to melt your own heart, to turn a flint into flesh as to turn your own heart to the Lord, to raise the dead and to make a world as to repent. Repentance is a flower which does not grow in nature's garden. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? or the leper his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23. Repentance is a gift that comes down from above. Men are not born with repentance in their hearts, as they are born with tongues in their mouths. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Him has God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance. Those who oppose him he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they that will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. It is not in the power of any mortal to repent at pleasure. Some ignorant, deluded souls vainly conceit that these five words, Lord, have mercy upon me are efficacious to send them to heaven. But as many are undone by buying a counterfeit jewel, 
So many are in hell by mistake of their repentance. Many rest in their repentance, which caused one to say, Repentance damns more than sin. It was a vain brag of King Cyrus that caused it to be written upon his tombstone, I can do all things. So could Paul, too. But it was through Christ who strengthened him. Remedy 2. The second remedy against this device of Satan is solemnly to consider of the nature of true repentance. Repentance is some other thing than what vain men conceive. The Hebrew word for repentance signifies to return, implying a going back from what a man had done. It denotes a turning or converting from one thing to another, from sin to God. The Greeks have two words by which they express the nature of repentance. One signifies to be careful, anxious, solicitous, after a thing is done. The other word denotes after wisdom, the mind's recovering of wisdom, or growing wiser after our folly. True repentance is a thorough change, both of the mind and life. Repentance for sin is nothing worth without repentance from sin. If you repent with a contradiction, says Tertullian, God will pardon you with a contradiction. If you repent and yet continue in your sin, God will pardon you and yet send you to hell. There is a pardon with a contradiction. Negative goodness serves no man's turn to save him from the axe. Repentance is sometimes taken, in a more strict and narrow sense, for godly sorrow. Sometimes repentance is taken in a large sense for amendment of life. Repentance has in it three things, namely the act, subject, and terms. The formal act of repentance is a changing and converting. It is often set forth in Scripture by turning. Turn me, and I shall be turned, says Ephraim. After I was turned, I repented, says he. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 18 and 19. It is a turning from darkness to light. The subject changed and converted is the whole man. It is both a sinner's heart and life. First his heart, then his life. First his person, then his practice and lifestyle. Wash, be clean. There is the change of their persons. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. There is the change of their practices. Cast away, says Ezekiel, all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed. There is the change of the life. And make you a new heart and a new spirit. Chapter 18, verse 31. There is the change of the heart. The terms of this change and conversion from which and to which both heart and life must be changed, from sin to God. The heart must be changed from the state and power of sin, the life from the acts of sin, but both unto God. The heart to be under His power in a state of grace, the life to be under His rule in all new obedience. And the Apostle speaks, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. So the prophet Isaiah says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. Chapter 55, verse 7. Thus much of the nature of evangelical repentance. Now souls, tell me whether it be such an easy thing to repent, as Satan does suggest. 
Besides what has been spoken, I desire that you will take notice that repentance does include turning from the most darling sin. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? Hosea chapter 14 verse 8. Yes, it is a turning from all sin to God. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord. Repent and turn yourselves from your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Herod turned from many, but turned not from his Herodias, which was his ruin. Judas turned from all visible wickedness, yet he would not cast out that golden devil covetousness, and therefore was cast into the hottest place in hell. He who turns not from every sin turns not aright from any one sin. Every sin strikes at the honor of God, the being of God, the glory of God, the heart of Christ, the joy of the Spirit, and the peace of a man's conscience. And therefore a soul truly penitent strikes at all, hates all, conflicts with all, and will labor to draw strength from a crucified Christ, to crucify all sins. A true penitent knows neither father nor mother, neither right eye nor right hand, but will pluck out the one and cut off the other. Saul spared but one Agag, and that cost him his soul and his kingdom. 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 9 Besides, repentance is not only a turning from all sin, but also a turning to all good, to a love of all good, to a prizing of all good, and to a following after all good. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 21 But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he has committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Mere negative righteousness and holiness is neither true righteousness nor true holiness. The evil servant did not use his one talent in debauchery. Matthew chapter 25 verse 18. Those reprobates did not rob the saints, but merely did not help them. Matthew chapter 25 verses 41 through 45. For this they must eternally perish. David fulfilled all the will of God and had respect unto all his commandments. And so had Zacharias and Elizabeth. It is not enough that the tree does not bear bad fruit, but it must bring forth good fruit, else it must be cut down and cast into the fire. Luke chapter 13 verse 7. So it is not enough that you are not thus and thus wicked, but you must be thus and thus gracious and godly, else divine justice will put the axe of divine vengeance to the root of your souls and cut you off forever. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. Besides, repentance does include a sensibleness of sin's sinfulness. How opposite and contrary sin is to the blessed God. God is light. Sin is darkness. God is life. Sin is death. God is heaven. Sin is is hell. God is beauty. Sin is deformity. Also, true repentance includes a sensibleness of sin's destructiveness, how it cast angels out of heaven and Adam out of paradise, how it laid the first cornerstone in hell and brought in all the curses, crosses, and miseries that are in the world, and how it makes men liable to all temporal, spiritual, and eternal wrath, how it has made men godless, Christless, 
hopeless, and heavenless. Further, true repentance includes sorrow for sin, contrition of heart. It breaks the heart with sighs and sobs and groans that by sin a loving God and Father is offended, a blessed Savior afresh crucified, and the sweet comforter, the Spirit, grieved and vexed. Again, repentance does include not only a loathing of sin, but also a loathing of ourselves for sin. As a man does not only loathe poison, but he loathes the very dish or vessel that has the smell of the poison, so a true penitent does not only loathe his sin, but he loathes himself, the vessel that smells of it. So, Ezekiel, chapter 20, verse 43, And there shall you remember your ways and all your doings, wherein you have been defiled. And you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that you have committed. True repentance will work your hearts, not only to loathe your sins, but to loathe yourselves. True repentance is a sorrowing for sin, as it is an offense to God and against God. Repentance both comes from God and drives a man to God, as it did the church in the canticles and the prodigal. Again, true repentance does not only work a man to loathe himself for his sins, but it makes him ashamed of his sin also. What fruit had you in those things whereof you are now ashamed, says the apostle, Romans chapter 6, verse 21. So Ezekiel, and you shall be confounded, and never open your mouth any more, because of your shame, when I am pacified toward you for all that you have done, says the Lord God. Chapter 16, verse 63. When a penitent soul sees his sins pardoned, the anger of God pacified, the divine justice satisfied, then he sits down and blushes as one ashamed. So much the more God has been displeased with the blackness of sin, the more will he be pleased with the blushing of the sinner. Bernard. Those who do not burn now in zeal against sin must before long burn in hell for sin. Yes, true repentance makes a man to deny his sinful self and to walk contrary to sinful self, to take a holy revenge upon sin, as you may see in Paul, the jailer, Mary Magdalene, and Manasseh. This the apostle shows in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Now, souls, sum up all these things together and tell me whether it would be such an easy thing to repent as Satan would make the soul to believe. And I am confident your heart will answer that it is as hard a thing to repent as it is to make a world or raise the dead. I shall conclude this second remedy with a worthy saying of a precious holy man. Repentance, says he, strips us stark naked of all the garments of the old Adam and leaves not so much as a shirt behind. In this rotten building it leaves not a stone upon a stone. As the flood drowned Noah's own friends and servants, so must the flood of repenting tears drown our sweetest and most darling sins. Remedy 3 The third remedy against this device of Satan is seriously to consider that repentance is a continued act. 
The word repent implies the continuation of it. Anselm confesses that all his life was either damnable for sin committed or unprofitable for good omitted, and at last concludes, Oh, what then remains but in our whole life but to lament the sins of our whole life? True repentance inclines a man's heart to perform God's statutes always, even unto the end. A true penitent must go on from faith to faith, from strength to strength. He must never stand still nor turn back. Repentance is a grace and must have its daily operation as well as other graces. True repentance is a continued spring where the waters of godly sorrow are always flowing. My sin is ever before me. Psalm 51 verse 3 A true penitent is often casting his eyes back to the days of his former vanity, and this makes him morning and evening to water his couch with tears. Remember not against me the sins of my youth, says one blessed penitent. And I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, says another penitent. Repentance is a continued act of turning, a repentance never to be repented of, a turning never to turn again to folly. A true penitent has ever something within him to turn from. He can never get near enough to God. No, not so near him as once he was. And therefore he is still turning and turning that he may get nearer and nearer to him, who is his chief good and his only happiness. Optimum maximum. The best and the greatest. They are every day a crying out, O wretched men that we are, who shall deliver us from this body of death? Romans chapter 7, verse 24. They are still sensible of sin, and still conflicting with sin, and still sorrowing for sin, and still loathing of themselves for sin. Repentance is no transient act, but a continued act of the soul. And tell me, O tempted soul, whether it be such an easy thing as Satan would make you believe, to be every day a turning more and more from sin and a turning nearer and nearer to God, your choicest blessedness. A true penitent can as easily content himself with one act of faith or one act of love as he can content himself with one act of repentance. A Jewish rabbi, pressing the practice of repentance upon his disciples and exhorting them to be sure to repent the day before they died, one of them replied that the day of any man's death was very uncertain. Repent, therefore, every day, said the rabbi and then you shall be sure to repent the day before you die. You are wise and know how to apply it to your own advantage. Remedy 4 The fourth remedy against this device of Satan is solemnly to consider that if the work of repentance were such an easy work as Satan would make it to be, then certainly so many would not lie roaring and crying out of wrath and eternal ruin under the horrors and terrors of conscience for not repenting. Yes, doubtless so many millions would not go to hell for not repenting, if it were such an easy thing to repent. Ah, do not poor souls under horror of conscience cry out and say, Were all this world a lump of gold, and in our hand to dispose of, we would give it for the least particle of true repentance. And will you say it is an easy thing to repent? When a poor sinner whose conscience is awakened shall judge the exchange of all the world for the least particle of repentance to be the happiest exchange that ever a sinner has made, tell me, O soul, is it good going to hell? 
Is it good dwelling with the devouring fire with everlasting burnings? Is it good to be forever separated from the blessed and glorious presence of God and saints, and to be forever shut out from those good things of eternal life, which are so many that they exceed number, so great that they exceed measure, so precious that they exceed all estimation? We know it is the greatest misery that can befall the sons of men. And would they not prevent this by repentance, if it were such an easy thing to repent as Satan would have it? Well, then, do not run the hazard of losing God, Christ, heaven, and your soul forever, by hearkening to this device of Satan. That is, that it is an easy thing to repent. If it be so easy, why then do wicked men's hearts so rise against those who press the doctrine of repentance upon them in the sweetest way? and by the strongest and the choicest arguments that the Scriptures afford. And why do they kill two at once, their faithful laborers' name, and their own souls, by their wicked words and actings? Because they are put upon repenting, which Satan tells them is so easy a thing. Surely, were repentance so easy, wicked men would not be so much enraged when that doctrine is, by evangelical considerations, pressed upon them. If you be backward in the thoughts of repentance, be forward in the thoughts of hell, the flames whereof only the streams of the penitent eye can extinguish. Tertullian Oh, how shall you tear and rend yourself! How shall you lament fruitless repenting? What will you say? Woe is me that I have not cast off the burden of sin! Woe is me that I have not washed away my spots, but am now pierced with my iniquities! Now have I lost the surpassing joy of angels. Basil. Remedy 5. The fifth remedy against this device of Satan is seriously to consider that to repent of sin is as great a work of grace as not to sin. Yet it is better to be kept from sin than cured of sin by repentance, as it is better for a man to be preserved from a disease than to be cured of the disease. By our sinful falls, the powers of the soul are weakened, the strength of grace is decayed, our evidences for heaven are blotted, fears and doubts in the soul are raised. Will God once more pardon this scarlet sin and show mercy to this wretched soul? The corruptions in the heart are more advantaged and confirmed, and the conscience of a man after falls is the more enraged or the more benumbed. Now for a soul, notwithstanding all this, to repent of his falls, this shows that it is as great a work of grace to repent of sin as it is not to sin. Repentance is the vomit of the soul, and of all purgatives, none so difficult and hard as it is to vomit. The same means that tend to preserve the soul from sin, the same means works the soul to rise by repentance when it is fallen into sin. We know the mercy and loving kindness of God is one special means to keep the soul from sin. As David spoke, I am constantly aware of your unfailing love, and I have lived according to your truth. I do not spend time with liars or go along with hypocrites. I hate the gatherings of those who do evil, and I refuse to join in with the wicked. Psalm 26, verses 3 through 5. So by the same means the soul is raised by repentance out of sin, as you may see in Mary Magdalene, who loved much and wept much, because much was forgiven her. Luke chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. So those in Hosea... Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us in pieces. 
Now he will heal us. He has injured us. Now he will bandage our wounds. In just a short time he will restore us so we can live in his presence. Hosea chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. As the Hebrew has it, in his favor. Confidence in God's mercy and love that he would heal them and bind up their wounds and revive their dejected spirits and cause them to live in his favor was that which worked their hearts to repent and return unto him. I might further show you this truth in many other particulars, but this may suffice. Only remember this in the general, that there is as much of the power of God and love of God and faith in God and fear of God and care to please God, zeal for the glory of God, requisite to work a man to repent of sin, as there is to keep a man from sin by which you may easily judge that to repent of sin is as great a work as not to sin. And now tell me, O soul, is it an easy thing not to sin? We know then certainly it is not an easy thing to repent of sin. Remedy 6. The sixth remedy against this device of Satan is seriously to consider that he who now tempts you to sin upon this account, that repentance is easy will before long to work you to despair, and forever to break the neck of your soul, present repentance as the most difficult and hardest work in the world. And to this purpose he will set your sins in order before you, and make them to say, We are yours, and we must follow you. Bede tells of a certain great man that was admonished in his sickness to repent, who answered that he would not repent yet, for if he should recover his companions would laugh at him, But growing more and more sick, his friends pressed him again to repent. But then he told them it was too late, for now, said he, I am judged and condemned. Now Satan will help to work the soul to look up and see God angry, and to look inward and to see conscience accusing and condemning, and to look downwards and see hell's mouth open to receive the impenitent soul, and all this to render the work of repentance impossible to the soul. What, says Satan, do you think that that is easy which the whole power of grace cannot conquer while we are in this world? Is it easy, says Satan, to turn from some outward act of sin to which you have been addicted? Do you not remember that you have often complained against such and such particular sins and resolved to leave them? And yet to this hour you have not, you cannot. What will it then be to turn from every sin? Yes, to mortify and cut off those sins those darling lusts, which are as joints and limbs, which are as right hands and right eyes. Have you not loved your sins above your Savior? Have you not preferred earth before heaven? Have you not all along neglected the means of grace, and despised the offers of grace, and vexed the spirit of grace? There would be no end if I would set before you the infinite evils that you have committed, and the innumerable good services that you have omitted and the frequent checks of your own conscience that you have condemned. And therefore you may well conclude that you can never repent, that you shall never repent. Now, says Satan, do but a little consider your numberless sins, and the greatness of your sins, the foulness of your sins, the heinousness of your sins, the circumstances of your sins, and you shall easily see that those sins that you thought to be but moats are indeed mountains, And is it not now in vain to repent of them? Surely, says Satan, if you should seek repentance and grace with tears, as Esau, you shall not find it. 
Your sand has run through the hourglass. Your sun has set. The door of mercy is shut. The golden scepter is withdrawn. And now that you have despised mercy shall be forever destroyed by justice. For such a wretch as you are to attempt repentance is to attempt a thing impossible. It is impossible that you, that in all your life could never conquer one sin, should master such a numberless number of sins, which are so near, so dear, so necessary, and so profitable to you, that have so long bedded and boarded with you, that have been old acquaintance and companions with you. Have you not often purposed, promised, vowed, and resolved to enter upon the practice of repentance, but to this day could never attain it? Surely it is in vain to strive against the stream, where it is so impossible to overcome. You are lost and cast off forever. To hell you must go. To hell you shall go. Ah, souls, he who now tempts you to sin by suggesting to you the easiness of repentance will at last work you to despair and present repentance as the hardest work in all the world and a work as far above man as heaven is above hell as light is above darkness. Oh, that you were wise to break off your sins by timely repentance. Repentance is a work that must be timely done, or utterly undone, forever. Device 7. By making the soul bold to venture upon the occasions of sin. Says Satan, You may walk by the harlot's door, though you won't go into the harlot's bed. You may sit and sup with the drunkard, though you won't be drunk with the drunkard. You may look upon Jezebel's beauty, and you may play and toy with Delilah, though you do not commit wickedness with the one or the other. You may with Achan handle the golden wedge, though you do not steal the golden wedge. Remedy 1. The first remedy is solemnly to dwell upon those scriptures which expressly command us to avoid the occasions of sin, and the least appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Whatever is heterodox, unsound and unsavory, shun it, as you would do a serpent in your way, or poison in your food. Epiphanius says that in the old law, when any dead body was carried by any house, they were enjoined to shut their doors and windows. Theodosius tore the Arians' arguments presented to him in writing because he found them repugnant to the scriptures. Augustine retracted even ironies because they had the appearance of lying. When God had commanded the Jews to abstain from swine's flesh, they would not so much as name it, but in their common talk would call a sow another thing. To abstain from all appearance of evil is to do nothing wherein sin appears, or which has a shadow of sin. Bernard abstained from whatever is of evil show, or of ill report, that he may neither wound conscience nor credit. We must shun and be shy of the very show and shadow of sin, if either we have a regard to our credit abroad or our comfort at home. It was good counsel that Livia gave to her husband, Augustus. It behooves you not only not to do wrong, but not to seem to do so. So Jude 23. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. It is a phrase taken from legal uncleanness which was contracted by touching the houses, the vessels, the garments of unclean people. Under the law, men might not touch a menstruous cloth, nor would God accept of a blemished peace offering. So we must not only hate and avoid gross sins, 
but everything that may carry a savor or suspicion of sin. We must abhor the very signs and tokens of sin. So in Proverbs chapter 5 verse 8, Remove your way far from her, and come not near the door of her house. He who would not be burnt must dread the fire. He who would not hear the bell must not meddle with the rope. One speaks of two young men that flung away their belts, when being in an idol's temple, the laving water fell upon them, detesting, says the historian, the garment spotted by the flesh. One said, As often as I have been among vain men, I returned home less a man than I was before. To venture upon the occasion of sin and then to pray, lead us not into temptation, is all one as to thrust your finger into the fire and then to pray that it might not be burnt. So in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, you have another command. Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not into the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. This triple gradation of Solomon shows with a great emphasis how necessary it is for men to flee from all appearance of sin. As the seaman shuns rocks and shelves, and as men shun those who have the plague sores running upon them, as weeds endanger the corn, as an infection endangers the blood, or as an infected house endanger the neighborhood, so does the company of the wicked endanger the godly. Friendship with wicked consorts is one of the strongest chains of hell and binds us to a participation in both their sin and their punishment. Remedy 2 The second remedy against this device of Satan is solemnly to consider that ordinarily there is no conquest over sin without the soul turning from the occasion of sin. It is impossible for that man to get the conquest of sin who plays and sports with the occasion of sin. God will not remove the temptation to sin except you turn from the occasion of sin. It is a just and righteous thing with God that he should fall into the pit, who will adventure to dance upon the brink of the pit and that he should be a slave to sin, that will not flee from the occasions of sin. As long as there is fuel in our hearts for a temptation, we cannot be secure. He who has gunpowder about him had need keep far enough off from sparks. To rush upon the occasions of sin is both to tempt ourselves and to tempt Satan to tempt our souls. It is very rare that any soul plays with the occasions of sin, but that soul is then ensnared by sin. The fable says that the butterfly asked the owl how she should deal with the fire which had singed her wings, who counseled her not to behold so much as its smoke. It is seldom that God keeps that soul from the acts of sin, who will not keep off from the occasions of sin. He who adventures upon the occasions of sin is as he who would quench the fire with gasoline. Ah, souls, often remember how frequently you have been overcome by sin when you have boldly gone upon the occasions of sin. Look back, souls, to the days of your vanity, wherein you have been as easily conquered, as tempted, vanquished, as assaulted, when you have played with the occasions of sin. As you would for the future be kept from the acting of sin and be made victorious over sin, oh, flee from the occasions of sin. Remedy 3 The third remedy against this device of Satan is seriously to consider that other precious saints, who were once glorious on earth, and are now triumphing in heaven, have turned from the occasion of sin as hell itself, as you may see in Joseph, Genesis chapter 39, verse 10, 
And it came to pass, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her, to lie by her, or to be with her. Joseph was famous for all the four cardinal virtues, if ever any were. In this one temptation you may see his fortitude, justice, temperance, and prudence, in that he shuns the occasion. For he would not so much as be with her. And what a man is indeed, that he is in a temptation, which is but a tap to give vent to corruption. The Nazarite might not only not drink wine, but not taste a grape, or the husk of a grape. The leper was to shave his hair and pare his nails. The devil knows that corrupt nature has a seed plot for all sin, which being drawn forth and watered by some sinful occasion is soon set a work to the producing of death and destruction. God will not remove the temptation until we remove the occasion to temptation. A bird while aloft is safe, but she comes not near the snare without danger. The shunning the occasions of sin renders a man most like the godliest of men. A soul eminently gracious dares not come near the temptation. So, Job chapter 31, verse 1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust upon a young woman. I set a watch at the entrance of my senses, that my soul might not by them be infected or endangered. The eye is the window of the soul, and if that should be always open, the soul might smart for it. A man may not look intently upon that, that he may not love entirely. The disciples were set agog by beholding the beauty of the temple. It is best and safest to have the eye always fixed upon the highest and noblest objects, as the mariner's eye is fixed upon the star, when their hand is on the stern. So David, when he was himself, he shuns the occasion of sin. Psalm 26, verses 4 and 5. I do not spend time with liars, or go along with hypocrites. I hate the gatherings of those who do evil, and I refuse to join in with the wicked. Stories speak of some who could not sleep when they thought of the trophies of other worthies that went before them. The highest and choicest examples are to some, and should be to all, very quickening and provoking. And oh, that the examples of those worthy saints— David, Joseph, and Job, might prevail with all your souls to shun and avoid the occasions of sin. Everyone should strive to be like them in grace, that they desire to be equal within glory. He who shoots at the sun, though he be far short, will shoot higher than he who aims at a shrub. It is best, and it speaks out much of Christ within, to eye the highest and the worthiest examples. Remedy 4 The fourth remedy against this device of Satan is solemnly to consider that the avoiding the occasions of sin is an evidence of grace, and that which lifts up a man above most other men in the world, that a man is indeed which he is in temptation, and when sinful occasions present themselves before the soul, this speaks out both the truth and the strength of grace. When with Lot a man can be chased in Sodom, and with Timothy can live temperate in Asia among the luxurious Ephesians and with Job can walk uprightly in the land of Uz, where the people were profane in their lives and superstitious in their worship, and with Daniel can be holy in Babylon, and with Abraham, righteous, and Chaldee, and with Nehemiah, zealous in Damascus, etc. Many a wicked man is full of corruption, but shows it not for lack of occasion. But that man is surely godly, who in his course will not be bad, though tempted by occasions to sin." A Christless soul is so far from refusing occasions to sin, 
when they come in his way, that he looks and longs after them, and rather than he will go without them, he will buy them, not only with love or money, but also with the loss of his soul. Nothing but grace can fence a man against the occasions of sin, when he is strongly tempted thereunto. Therefore, as you would cherish a precious evidence in your own bosoms of the truth and strength of your graces, shun all sinful occasions. Plutarch says of Demosthenes that he was excellent at praising the worthy acts of his ancestors, but not so at imitating them. Oh, that this were not applicable to many professors in our times.